0: This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitchew in the middle of a long, long summer, people. And I'm
1: Steven Caradini, recording in a closet because of a long, long <laughs> summer. Long year. Uh, long everything, yeah. This has
0: been a long decade already, and we're literally only six months into it.
1: That's, yeah, this is going to go down in history books. And hey, we're going to talk about a book of history today. It's true. It's called Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness by Simone Brown. And it deals with surveillance and blackness. And, like, you might think, wow, that's just tautological, but there's a lot of books that don't actually cover what's in their title. It's true. And this one does. And it's very important to note, even before we really get into the meat of this, that this is an academic book written for academics. Yep. It is specifically focused on using one methodology that is not generally used in surveillance studies, critical theory slash critical race theory, to get people in surveillance theory or surveillance studies to look at things a different way. So this book Mm -hmm. assumes that you know about surveillance studies and that you are willing and interested, or at least willing to be convinced, that critical race theory has something to say about surveillance studies. Right. So if immediately you're like, "I, that's a lot
0: of thing going over my head. Indeed. We're going to do our best to help with that. We're going to do our best. But we we only have two half an hour episodes, so we're not going to cover... like, There's a lot here. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So that's the caveat in advance that this book is important in terms of doing a certain type of academic work Mm -hmm. to try to make a particular type of line of thought of surveillance studies look at things in a slightly different way. And, you know, you can read it along and you don't have to know everything about surveillance studies or critical race theory, but knowing about them both helps. It does. I do know about
0: both of these things. And Chris did not know about surveillance studies. I knew the field existed and I have read some in it. I have not read nearly as much in the space. So I'm much I am deeply less familiar. (laughs) Yeah, and
1: it is by no means my expertise either, but I have read more of it than Chris. Yeah. And it is a setup for the book. This is basically the whole first chapter is what we're explaining right now. Is how surveillance studies works, how critical race theory works, and the reason that you would want critical race theory to be a part of surveillance studies. So, broadly speaking, surveillance studies is the study of uh, not just technological, but at this point, primarily technological surveillance of anyone by anyone else. And generally, it is looking at authority, surveilling people who are not in authority, but Surveillance studies itself is actually much larger
0: than that. There are a bunch of different kinds of things that get tackled under surveillance studies, and they include a couple framings and terms that I found particularly interesting and and helpful and illuminating. She actually has a lovely section on the idea of the panopticon, which is a fairly central image in surveillance studies, and I, I use the word image there advisedly. This image from 18th century philosopher Jeremy Bentham of a means of surveilling an entire prison or other similar to-be-observed population and controlling it through that observation— A panopticon is a thing where you can see everything, where you have some people in the center of a tower in Bentham's original framing who can look down and see everything happening around it. Pan, everything, opticon, a place where you see things. And as well, the original idea of the panopticon had mechanics in place to prevent the observers from being observed, so that even if they weren't there, you had to assume they were there. And people have employed mechanics like these so far as they could in various contexts, and certainly people have thought of ways to employ that in digital contexts today. But as she notes, surveillance studies also looks at ways that people engage in what you might call counter-surveillance, surveilling the would-be surveillers, in self-surveillance related to some of the ideas around self-measurement and otherwise opting into forms of being tracked that, are, again, are especially common in the digital era, and so on. And this was some of the stuff I was unfamiliar with. Generalizing that idea of surveillance into a general discussion of how people in the world surveil and counter surveil each other and how these interplay between relations of power relations of justice etc at a basic level
1: the idea of surveillance is them watching you and the idea of counter surveillance is you recording them right back and so it is a two-way and then later on it's argued as a multiple way street it's a it's a way of thinking about the world And the way of thinking about how relationships of control, but also responsibility work. And so all of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this book is a perspective on seeing. We're thinking
0: literally about seeing. You'll notice a connection to some of the other things we've talked about this season on epistemology there, because how you come to see and what you come to see and how therefore and thereby you come to know and what you come to know are inextricable from one another.
1: Yes, and then there are some transformations that we'll get to in a minute that move from seeing to being, there are some touches on ontology, although she takes fairly careful pains not to, one, go deep into the mire of ontology, and two, to keep the, the focus pretty squarely on how the main argument of the book works. And the main argument of the book is that blackness, which is what she calls it, but essentially black and brown people, have been surveilled in particular ways that transforms the ways that they are seen into ways that they are known. Right. And so the act of surveilling turns them into different categories or puts them in different categories depending on which chapter of the book that we're looking at. And thus, the surveillance is, as it always is, an act of control, but also is an act of transformation Mm -hmm. and attempting to transform for the purposes of control.
0: And to set that fairly directly in the point of conversation between race relations and surveillance, she goes out of her way to do work of critical history. We weren't Sure, when we picked up this book, well, exactly, we were going to be reading. But what you're actually reading here is, in many ways, a work of history and application. So from the very introduction, she works to situate current practices of surveillance against a historical backdrop and to connect what we do with new technologies today to what we have long been doing. So on page 8, she writes... Rather than seeing surveillance as something inaugurated by new technologies, such as automated facial recognition or unmanned autonomous vehicles or drones, to see it as ongoing is to insist that we factor in how racism and anti-blackness undergird and sustain the intersecting surveillances of our present order. That is, as much as it has become fashionable to talk about surveillance and the impacts it has on everyone's lives in the last... Couple decades in the advent of technologies that allow new kinds of surveillance. She is going in this book to make the argument that these things are often inextricably connected to kinds of surveillance we've done in the past. And therefore, that our reflections on them today should consider how they developed from those things in the past and how, because of those organic connections, they continue to have racial implications and components to them, including racializing in the sense of constructing racial dynamics by their very employment, as Stephen just said.
1: Yeah. And so that's one argument that is sort of implicit in Critical race theory that isn't necessarily a commonplace, other places theoretically, is that Mm -hmm. race doesn't really have an intrinsic existence. It has no signifying aspects that are uh, just inherent. Race is something that is applied to people's skin after people see their skin. So you know nothing about a person if all you know is the color of their skin. Now, you might say like there are trends and such, but those are outside of the actual skinness of the skin. And so the the argument here is that all that we see of race is our interpretation of the, the histories, which is what she's particularly interested in, in this book, as well as the social structures that go along with race that we have packed into the concept of race.
0: And it's worth note that her focus here is very much on that in the context of, as as we said from the outset, Western European and American handling of race around Black people in particular. And she alludes to how it impacts other racial minorities in Western European and American contexts, but her her focus there is primarily on Black people, largely because of the history of racism, and that's her focus and specialty. These dynamics do exist in other contexts, and that's an interesting conversation for another time, perhaps. But this is, uh, I think, this is a helpful point to pause here because there is a timeliness to our discussion of this book, which we did not plan. When Stephen and I planned the season, we knew this was an important subject to talk about the dynamics of race as related to epistemology and technology are a thing that you cannot responsibly overlook in a discussion of things like this, we think. And then, as we came to this point in the season, the United States rightly erupted in protests of police brutality and injustice against Black people. And so, We didn't choose this for that reason, but we're very glad that it was on that list. And even insofar as we'll get into some points of disagreement in the the second episode, I want to say this is a well-written book. And even if you have deep philosophical disagreements with CRT or some of the other trends in surveillance studies that come up here, there's a lot to learn from this book. I learned a lot from this book. Mm -hmm. It was painful reading in many places because... The history of race in America is painful, in in the sense that what was done to and has been done to Black people in this country is awful. Yes, but it was valuable reading, and so as we keep going through the argument, even if you hear things where you think I don't, I don't know about that, we still would commend the book to you and say, you, yeah, you'd learn a lot from reading it. It's hard reading, and you should do that hard work.
1: Yeah, one of the things that. Uh, I benefited from in grad school is that I had to read a lot of things that I disagreed with. And one of the things that you you do is you have to formulate a stance towards this stuff that you disagree with. Mm -hmm. And you can either just reject it wholesale. You can take what you can get from it and sort of dismiss the rest. You can attempt to engage with it and argue against it. Uh, there's lots of different ways that you can go about reading things that you disagree with. But what I've tried to do and what I encourage my students to do is when you read something that you disagree with, to say, okay, here are the parts I disagree with. Are they critical to the main argument, right? Do I disagree with the actual argument that is being made? Do I disagree with the presuppositions? Do I disagree with the examples? What do I actually disagree with? And that—that that is clarifying in that there are some things about critical race theory, the presuppositions of which we just disagree with as a right. epistemological stance. And we'll talk about that in the second episode. But there are also a bunch of things in its presuppositions that we're like, yeah, that's that's true. Like that's just, yep. that's a presupposition that you can and should hold probably. So even if you say like, okay, like, this is what I disagree with, that doesn't disregard the rest of the things that are good. And sometimes even if you disagree with something at the beginning, you can be convinced that, oh, maybe I was wrong. And that's right. something that I've... We call this learning. It's really good. <laughs> that's that's a bit snarky there, Chris. <laughs>
0: it's, it's a hard process. <laughs> it, yes, it is. I snark a little... Because it is easy when, and it is easy, especially in politicized moments, to treat conflict of ideas as inherently zero-sum and to treat it as a thing where, oh, you say something I disagree with, so I must attack you and resist you, rather than saying, as a starting point, what if I were wrong and you were right? What would that mean? What falls out of that yeah and maybe you're still wrong but maybe I still learn some things by doing that work of engaging seriously with what you say and I can yeah I can learn I can change my mind maybe I change my mind to be even more strongly opposed to your point of view in the end but engaging seriously is valuable and produces learning
1: and I also think that part of the the problem of of competing ideas is literally the framing of competing ideas if you yeah. look at it the way that I was talking about, uh, one of the frames that I was talking about a minute ago, if you start with the presuppositions like, all right, here's the parts of it that we agree with. And then here are some other things that I I don't know if I agree with. Let's see if I agree with those or not. You're moving it from, this is a person who's my enemy. This is an idea that's my enemy to, okay, so this is a person, or in this case with the book, this is a set of ideas that I kind of broadly agree with in some ways. Like, let's look at the things that I don't know if I agree with and go from there. And so we make this aside not to say, like, you should become a critical race theorist because, like, (laughs) that's not what we're doing. But to say that in terms of thinking about epistemology, which is literally what this podcast season is about, we see critical race theory as a way of knowing it's an epistemology. And Mm -hmm. whether we like it or not, it is just as valid... As any of the other ones we've studied, be it postmodernism or whatever else the or whatever else we'll be studying, Um, I almost gave away what the next
0: book's going to (laughs) be. Not till the end of the episode, Stephen. Not until
1: the end of the episode. So we say that to to say that we don't come at this with uh, overtly like enthusiastic, like, oh yeah, this is what we do now, nor pessimistic, like, this is something that we definitely disagree with. We came at it the same way that we did Leotard's Postmodernism, which is, okay, so what do we do with this? Okay, so what do we do with this? Chapter (laughs) two... Yeah, I was going to say, so chapter two covers... Uh, Chapter two is... A where the history part really kicks in. So the first chapter is basically everything that we just talked about. She covers a lot of that same material uh, in much more detail. She also talks about intersectional injustice, which is like when two or more injustices come together to make a bigger injustice. She talks about black feminism. She talks about how those things act together to get us to where we are. Uh, so chapter two is about... The idea of the Book of Negroes, which is an actual book, interestingly, which was a historical place where black people in pre-Civil War America were able to essentially argue their way into freedom.
0: Immediately after the Revolutionary War, as part of the terms of withdrawal for Great Britain, some Black people were allowed to basically argue that they were legitimately free under terms in the treaty and they should get to accordingly emigrate to Britain or Germany or Canada or anywhere not the United States. Mostly Canada. Mostly Canada.
1: This is a a site where she talks about the nature of what it means to be black, because this book of Negroes essentially said like, okay, you're black now, argue that you should be able to leave, where you know, she points out that not everyone who was theoretically should have been in the book was there because they either looked light skinned or they had other reasons that they got around the book. And so sort of begins her argument that race is really sort of a a sense of seeing and interpreting more than a distinct structure. And particularly arguing that you are able to move, to have freedom, to essentially leave the surveillance or to be put back and and continue to be surveilled is part and parcel of creating race, right? So the idea of race is the idea of surveillance in that you can't be racialized, which
0: is a word she used, without being surveilled. She gives two interesting examples historically here. One The aforementioned pass out of the newly formed United States as the progenitor of the system of passports for international travel in general. And she doesn't argue that it is the sole progenitor, which would be incorrect. And she's a more careful historian than that. But she shows that this kind of freedom of travel and identification as you travel has these deep connected roots. And this circles back very strongly in chapter four. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But the idea of the modern passport is connected deeply historically to those early passes out of America as means of controlling travel and allowing travel. She also brings up the example of requirements in New York City and many other places early on where slave People were required to carry lanterns to identify themselves, and in a story that unfortunately will sound very familiar in the present day, people with black bodies were assumed to be slaves and assumed to be up to no good, whether or not they were free persons, and could be harassed, beaten, killed, Mm -hmm. etc., for not having their lantern identifying them, and a pass identifying them as safely out after dark, while... Black. Particularly because if you're black, then you're harder
1: to see in the dark, which is just, again, turns back to this idea of seeing as the nature of what it means to be racialized is that Mm -hmm. if they can't see you, then you aren't racialized in a particular sort of way because they literally have not categorized you because they haven't seen you. And so they want to make sure that they do see you so that they can categorize you appropriately. And so they make you carry a lantern if you are a enslaved person at this particular time period and so there's this complicated it's both complicated and not complicated at the same time because she's very careful in explaining how it works in detail but essentially like black people were made to carry lanterns because they were black and they therefore they were treated with suspicion and so when i say that i'm like glossing over like I don't know, like 10 pages of detail. (laughs) Yeah. So we are, for the purposes of time, covering a lot of ground that she covers in much more detail with much more historical accuracy to the experiences
0: of the people that are part of this narrative. Yeah. Chapter three, she transitions into a discussion of branding. And both chapters two and three are the kind of difficult to read because so horrific chapters, that, again, are worth reading. Three is particularly difficult. Chapter three, she talks about branding. And we'll talk more about this chapter in the next episode. But for now, just to summarize its argument, she connects the idea of physically branding human beings, which you should pause and consider, was the act of taking hot metal and searing another human being's skin with it to leave a permanent scar, causing... Profound agony in the moment and lasting mental trauma in order to display ownership, in order to mark for tracking purposes, and this is where it connects to our surveillance, to be able to say... This person bears this brand. They belong to so-and-so, and if they run away or are later freed or gain their freedom in some other way, they can be tracked down later and marked. They can be surveilled by the placing of marks on their skin. She then works to connect this to various kinds of what she describes as epidermalization, making the body visible in certain ways and then selling it in certain ways in not only that era, but in the contemporary area through biometrics, through other marks of identity, through facial recognition. And then she puts that into the context of pop culture with a look at branding in contemporary culture. She zooms in and looks at Will Smith, in particular, the actor, looks at the roles he plays specifically in the three movies Enemy of the State, I, Robot, and Men in Black, and then turns at the end of the chapter to a couple of other pieces of contemporary art coming out of the Black critical art tradition to comment on branding and marketing and contemporary use of imagery in those ways, including imagery of branding. There's a very striking image of a black man with a nike brand on his head not nike doing the advertising but an artist using that image to make a point with it to attempt to connect modern marketing ideas and the idea of branding as it has come to mean to its historical origins and it also throws in biometrics As
1: well as a way of contemporary branding using thumbprints and other sorts of biometric markers as ways of identifying people as something or something.
0: Not. She calls out in particular there the way that biometrics are often aligned and have encoded in them deep assumptions about the color of the skin that they'll be working on, the durability of things like thumbprints versus the impact of manual labor and therefore class distinctions, a bunch of interesting points on surveillance and its application in these modern technologies and how that not only was originally racialized, but continues to racialize as well as classify in the sense of working with class structures the world around us.
1: From there, she moves through to uh, direct surveillance, which is in the form of the TSA, the airport security. I don't even know what to call it at this point, like. (laughs) Uh, the organization that does an approximation of security at airports. She argues throughout this fourth chapter, She calls it security theater. Um, and this is a place where both Chris and I came into this being like, we already agree, we're, we're at the subtitle of the chapter and we already agree with whatever you're about to say. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep, it's security theater. But she argues here that there are certain types of people that are more apt to be flagged and identified as potential risks to flying or to other people's flying. And that often has to do with the assumptions that people make based on skin or on clothes. Hair. Hair is the one that's actually the most mentioned in this particular chapter. And she argues that this is basically just reinscribing this idea of race, like race is the basic way that people are making decisions on who should get uh, flagged and and how people should be treated when they are being searched. And this is not to say that there aren't white people or people of uh, other races that get flagged as well, but she goes with care to point out several situations where race in particular was
0: part of the problem that caused flagging to happen. Right. Right. So page 132, for example, she cites a U.S. Government Accountability Office report from 2000, which indicated that black women who were U.S. citizens had the highest likelihood of being strip searched at the airport and were nine times more likely than white women who were U.S. citizens to be x-rayed after being frisked or patted down, even though the same report also found that on the basis of those same x-ray results, Black women who were U.S. citizens were less than half as likely to be found carrying contraband as white women who were U.S. citizens. So just by the numbers, 18 times more likely than the evidence actually warranted of how often they were to be strip searched and x-rayed. That's staggering.
1: That's super bad. It's awful. It goes on from there to get more and more extreme in the cases that are presented and there's, again, this, this direct line, she calls it flying while black as uh, a corollary to uh, what you may have heard of driving while black, which is the tendency to just by being black and doing something that is in other people's experience innocuous, you have higher level of scrutiny afforded to you. And so she mentions that, and she again brings up ideas of uh, pop culture and of uh, contemporary um, events and so she she continues to argue that uh, the process of surveillance is not just a uniform surveilling, but that there are aspects of surveillance in history and contemporary culture that are directly related to the fact of people's assumptions of race. And right. so, when you're thinking about surveillance, whether it's at the airport or in historical conditions of freedom versus not free or thinking about how uh, blackness is sold in the contemporary marketplace, you can't talk about surveillance in its totality without talking about race. And so at no point does she try to overhaul surveillance studies, but she tries to say that without talking about race in surveillance studies, we're missing something. We're missing significant portions of what it means to be surveilled. And particularly if we understand that and we can apply those concepts more broadly, we have a more nuanced view of how everyone is surveilled, not just how black and brown people are surveilled. Yep. And so she concludes with a short chapter that basically outlines that concept, that black people and brown people, blackness, as she calls it. When, when black people are involved in technology or surveillance more broadly, they bring with themselves, literally through the color of their skin, but also through the ways that people interpret their skin, a position in relation to the technology that is questioning the technology. And she brings up by way of explanation, she brings up the fact that it's so silly. It's true, though, um, that webcams, in particular, she cites one webcam, but this is a known problem. Webcams have a hard time picking up black faces and recognizing them um, in, in situations where it's looking for a face. And HP's response to this video about the webcam that uh, that they... <laughs> it was so bad. Yeah. This is the response HP gave. Hewlett Packard later responded by first thanking Crier and Zaman, and then clarified that it wasn't that their cameras can't see black people, as one CNN news report stated. It was that the technology is built on standard algorithms that measure the difference in intensity of contrast between the eyes and the upper cheek and nose, and that the camera might have difficulty seeing contrast in conditions where there is insufficient foreground lighting. What uh, the black activists needed, according to HP, given their standard algorithms, was better lighting,
0: and then she throws in, or maybe a lantern. That was a that was a pretty sick burn. It's a pretty sick burn. I I appreciated this note from the next page over. After that, she says, when dark matter troubles algorithms in this way. It amounts to a refusal of the idea of neutrality when it comes to certain technologies. But if algorithms can be troubled, this might not necessarily be a bad thing. In other words, could there be some potential in going about unknown and unremarkable and perhaps unbothered where CCTV, camera-enabled devices, facial recognition, and other computer vision technologies are in use? This is a theme that should be familiar to listeners of this podcast, and we'll return to it in more detail in our next episode because Mm -hmm. it does get at things we've been talking about for a long time about technologies and applies them in an area where they desperately need to be applied.
1: So that's the book. It's, uh, it's, it's fairly slim. It's, it's 164
0: pages. Uh,
1: she does her work quickly, but well. She f- focuses in very closely on, on how uh, her, the aspects of her particular argument are sort of displayed or drawn through our historical moment into our contemporary moment.
0: We'll be back next episode to talk about our agreements and disagreements, and also we'll be back next month to talk about Ursula Franklin's The Real World of Technology, which I noted actually got a call out in this book. It did. Yes.
1: Yeah. So there's connections already. And uh, the... Music at the beginning of the episode was New Rock Thingy by Joshua Crumbly. That really is the title. I didn't just like forget the name. It's literally called New Rock Thingy. Crumbly is a, a jazz slash rock slash funk slash ambient bassist whose work I commend to you. I will put a link to the review of his album that I re- wrote recently. It's really great. I think you'll like it. We used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission.
0: Thanks as always to the folks sponsoring our show. We appreciate all of you. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can do so at patreon.com/slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. And of course, if you have thoughts about this or any other episode, you can always send us an email at hello at winningslowly.org, reach out to us on Patreon, or you can send us a note on Twitter at winning slowly or on Facebook at winning slowly podcast. It will be slowest on those latter two, but Stephen will eventually get to them. I do check them. I do and check I, them. I am going to be posting quotes and interesting bits from Ursula Franklin's book back on the Patreon over the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. For listening.